0: I wonder if you ever worry because uh, Christians in the UK are in the minority and at times is a despised minority. Um, One daily newspaper fairly recently reported on a study that showed that Christians in the UK are under tremendous pressure at work. And uh, these were the equality chiefs, this is what they said, that Christians are too scared to admit their beliefs because they fear being mocked or treated like bigots. So there is a spirit of fear among the Lord's people in our country. And uh, I want this evening just to remind ourselves that uh, it's always been that way, <laughs> and it always will be. We will always be the despised minority. Uh, it was our saviour, of course, who said, if the world hates you, Remember that it hated me first, and if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. In other words, it's par for the course. We shouldn't be surprised, we're saddened, but of course we should never be surprised. Now I love the book of Acts, um, one of those books in the Bible, if not the book in the Bible, where it's full of uh, acts of God's people, acts of the Spirit. But here's this early church, and they come Um, bursting out of the day of Pentecost into an unbelieving world, into a hostile, antagonistic world. The the, the church was birthed into that kind of atmosphere. Uh, And and immediately, as soon as they started speaking about Jesus, um, the clampdown comes. Whatever you do, don't speak in the name of Jesus. And so the apostles are brought in and they are flogged and, and yet they're released and rejoicing after it uh, and then when we come to chapter six that's where we had our reading after the battle outside the church and um, we see that tensions within our, our building and uh, complaints regarding um, unequal distribution of food to the widows uh, the leaders, wisely recognized the problem, it's a problem of delegation, that's what's needed. So seven men are appointed, we call them deacons, the first deacons, um, but among them is this man called Stephen. We're told he's a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. So now Stephen comes centre stage, a remarkable and significant event that we're going to, to look at, and culminating in his becoming the church's first martyr for the gospel. But what we notice, first of all, is that it's a trumped-up charge. We we can see a parallel here between uh, Stephen and and the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, now, now Stephen's a man who's already been exercising a a powerful ministry. If you look at verse 8 of chapter 6, chapter 6, verse 8, and Stephen, full of faith, and power did great wonders and signs among the people. Then we see there's opposition from a local synagogue; um, they've taken exception to his, his preaching and his teaching, and because in verse ten we're told that they're unable to compete against his wisdom or the spirit in which he spoke. And so because of this, they resort to other tactics. Um, blasphemy, that's the charge. It's blasphemy. He's spoken against Moses and God. I'm not sure which they were more offended by, him speaking about Mo- against Moses or against God. But they say he's speaking against the holy place and the law. Uh, said this Jesus of Nazareth would destroy this place and the customs Moses handed down to us. So we notice that same charge as against the Lord Jesus. But then we see in verse 15 of chapter 6, we see this uh, remarkable observation recorded. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. They noticed something. When this opposition was in full flow, they noticed something about his appearance. Um, I love Christian biography, such an encouragement. Uh, And One of my favourite biographies is The Life of Jonathan Goforth. Uh, Great name for a missionary, isn't it? Goforth. Uh, Jonathan Goforth was used greatly in China. Jonathan and Rosalind, his, his wife. And um, But it is often said that Jonathan Goforth had a face like an angel, <laughs> and a servant girl that they had in, in their home often said, uh, said this, I've often watched Dr. Goforth's face and wondered if God looks like him. There was just something of, of a heavenly glow on his countenance, I guess similar to as we see in Moses when he came down from the mount. So that's what we notice here. So, He's under pressure, and yet there's this glow from heaven on his countenance. But then when we come to chapter 7, and that's where we're going, really, it's Stephen's defense speech. It's actually a sermon. Um, David Cook, the, uh, the Bible teacher and commentator, says this. The scene is a courtroom, because that's where he is now. Um, so we're going into the courtroom to see what happens from here on. David Cook says this, the scene is of a courtroom, but with switched roles. It's as though that no one told Stephen that he is the accused. Rather, he switches roles and becomes the prosecuting attorney with his accusers in the box. So Stephen then, and it's a long chapter, chapter seven, but what he proceeds to To do is to give a potted history of uh, God's dealings with His people Israel. So, from verses two to sixteen, he he speaks of the patriarchs. He he reminds me of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph. Verses seventeen to forty-three, he recounts Moses, the law, Exodus, the wilderness wanderings, and then forty-four to fifty he covers the place of the tabernacle and the temple in their worship. Now, they know all this, of course. (laughs) He's going through all of this, and they know it very well. They know the history. But Stephen knows what he's doing. He's marshalling his material. And there are two points that he's making here. The first is this, that God's deliverers, God's spokesmen, have always been rejected by the people. And then secondly, that Israel's religion always was reduced to empty externals, that they came to love the externals rather than than God. So the buildings and all the the things around it became prominent. Well, So he's going through this. You can can imagine the hearers are growing more and more irritated as he proceeds. And then the final straw is when we get to verse 4, 51, and, and as with all good preaching, he applies what he's been speaking on. So verse 51, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Well, it's only going to go one way after that. They, they gnash their teeth in fury, they rush towards him, they're covering their ears, they're yelling, and then they proceed to drag him out of the city for stoning And then we see his remarkable death then. It's a scene of of noise and chaos. And yet Stephen seems oblivious to all this. He's transfixed by a sight of his Saviour at this time. Uh, Verse 55. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So he sees his Saviour. As he draws near to death, there's there's a a, a pulling aside of the veil, and he sees his Saviour, and he sees the heavens open, and he sees him exalted to the place of all power and authority. We've all got to go through that veil, haven't we? Unless the Lord comes, of course, every one of us has to pass through the valley of the shadow of death. We have to go from this life to heaven. It's the last enemy. Death is the last enemy. And we have to do it alone. We can't take our loved ones with us. but, um, But we are the Lord's people. If you're a Christian, you belong to Jesus Christ. You are his property. And the question I would pose is this, are not all believers granted a little glimpse of glory when they pass from this life? In other words, the one who promised to prepare a place for us and take us to be with him, the one who promised never to leave us, and although it might not be as sensational as this, isn't there something that we can expect God to do for us? to give us a glimpse. The Apostle Paul says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. 2 Timothy 4, 18. Peter, Apostle Peter, says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. And you will receive a rich welcome, an abundant entrance perhaps you have, into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 1, 11. It's the one thing, I guess, that we're not looking forward to all that much. We've got to deal with death. And, uh, and sometimes we might be afraid to admit that there is a fear there still, even though we, we know we shouldn't be afraid. Um, I don't know if you've read um, Douglas Macmillan's book on, on the Lord's My Shepherd. There were a number of... Maybe you were at the Aber Conference when when Douglas Macmillan preached on Psalm 23. And um, he records in the book how um, his father was... Uh, there were shepherds uh, up in, in the highlands, But his father was always secretly afraid of of death um, until his time came to die. And uh, Douglas Macmillan records how that um, from their large window they could see out on the hills and the sheep would come down from the hills at night. He said, Douglas, look outside the window, what do you see? And he said, well, Father, I see the the sheep coming down from the hills. He He said, no, I don't see that, I see an orchard. He said, I see my mother. I see your mother and other relatives there. And he goes on to speak about the glimpse that God gave him just before he was taken home. And he admitted to his son how he'd always secretly been afraid of death until that moment. And, uh, and I know we can't build a doctrine on this, but maybe you've known people, and I've known godly people, not given to exaggeration. A friend of mine... Uh, dying of cancer, unconscious for three days. His wife was sitting with him. Suddenly he, he sits up in his bed, opens his arms, opens his eyes, smiles, and then he's taken home. Now, uh, as I say, that uh, we, we, we can't build a doctrine on this. And yet, um, isn't there something of the Saviour's promise? Even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you will fear no evil. We have a Saviour who's gone through death, taken the sting out of death, who will never leave us, never forsake us. He's with us through life. He gives us grace to live and grace also to die. And saints, we're going home, aren't we? We're going home. This world here, and that, you know, when you look at the, the, the vast crowd of people, we see crowds of people, and there's nothing special about us. We're very ordinary. You know, we're in the process of decay, like, like everybody else. But we're marked out. We are the redeemed of God. God's own Son came from heaven to live and to die and to be raised in power, conquering death, and all for us. All of those things He did for us, He lived. He died. He rose. All for us. And we may not have a, a martyr's death, um, but God knows our, the day of our home call and our circumstances, and surely we can trust him to be with us through life and through death. So here is Stephen then, and um, maybe just a word for preachers here, because I, yeah, when we look at Stephen's discourse, I think there's great encouragement for, for we who are preachers here, because there's no judging how good a sermon is from the response we get. You know, any preachers will know it's not the most, you know, in one sense, uh, comfortable task. And if, if you're and most preachers are shy people, the last thing we want to do very often is stand up in front of people. And, uh, and, and uh, you know, if you don't have sleepless nights before preaching, you normally get sleepless nights afterwards. You know, I shouldn't have said this or I should have said that. Um, but there's no, we've we got no way of judging how, how a sermon goes down. Uh, and what we see with, um, with Stephen is, is that his message is, is biblical, it's anointed, it's well applied, but it's not appreciated too much. And the point is not whether we get approval or criticism, but was it approved by God? That's always the bottom line here. I remember hearing Rico Tice, you know, from Christianity Explored, and um, Rico said that the people would often ask me after a mission, Rico, were many saved? And he said, it's the wrong question. They should have asked me, Rico, did you faithfully preach the gospel? (laughs) And that's an important principle for Christians. Did we faithfully live the gospel? Not I'll be popular, but did we faithfully live the gospel? Stephen is keen to have heaven's smile above all else. All that really matters is not how many people follow you on Twitter, uh, how many likes you get on Facebook, What matters is, is God pleased with us? When the sun goes down we put our head on the pillow, is God pleased with me? It's all that matters. There's great peace in that. And so with Stephen here, we see three things that his death has in common with the the Saviour. He commits his spirit to the Lord. He prays for forgiveness for his killers. And then he departs this earthly scene. Paul speaks about keeping a clear conscience before God and before men. And just as we draw to a close, really, we need to just keep in mind that the majority are normally wrong. You know, we, we look around the world and we seem the ones who are out of step. And, uh, you know, we, we need to remind ourselves that the world will never understand God's people, never appreciate God's people will always be the despised minority from that point of view. So we shouldn't fret over it. I guess that's what makes the Christian life at times a lonely, a lonely walk. Whether you're at university or whether you're in the workplace, or whether you're in the neighbourhood, whatever, we, we are the odd ones. out. We are odd <laughs> if we're living for Jesus Christ. In, in this society in which we live, we, we, would be, we would be thought of as weird, but let's get over it. You know, let's not fret about that. Let's not be defensive. But admit that's par for the course and let's carry on courageously loving people and accepting that we never will be understood. Tozer, um, A.W. Tozer, said, Judaism slew the prophets, crucified Christ and popular Christianity killed the reformers, jailed the Quakers and drove John Wesley into the streets. When it comes to religion, the crowds are always wrong. And then he prays this for himself, a lovely prayer. He says, Lord, give me the spirit of Elijah and the faith of Noah. Deliver me from the scramble for popularity and strengthen me to serve alone, oblivious to the roar of the crowds. Amen. That's a pretty good prayer, isn't it? (laughs) To be delivered from that craving for popularity. Well, finally, as we we look at this passage then, um, this incident is is the catalyst for for two great things. Let's come to the end of chapter 7, chapter 7, verse 59. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, Do not charge them with this sin. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So, Two things, the catalyst for two things. Firstly, we see that there was a young man present at this stoning who at that moment was the church's fiercest enemy and he would become its greatest champion, Saul, of course, Paul. And then secondly, that God would use this incident to thrust out the church, to thrust them out and to spread them out with the the message. So, just to close really, you know, as we look at our world, it's fatal to judge how things are going. How are things going? Well, Jesus Christ is building his church. And it seems to be so often that the blessing is always in the battle. You know, we've been praying, many of us, for revival for years. and Maybe God is answering our prayers in ways that we didn't expect. That there's going to come struggle Who knows, but these dark and strange days might just be heralding in the time when God is going to come. So let's have fresh courage and expectancy and uh, let's not be on the back foot and defensive, but let's have large hearts for a poor world that has no hope, knowing that our times are in his hands, we can say, we're poor, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Let's pray now. We want to thank you, Father, in heaven, that we are in your safe hands. We pray, Lord, you'll deliver us from any sense of vulnerability or fragility, knowing that if God is for us, who... What can be against us? So give us fresh courage, we pray. Give us a heavenly poise, knowing that you will be with us and that you, Lord Jesus Christ, promise never to leave us nor forsake us, to be with us to the end of the age. Lord, hear our prayers, increase our faith, because we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our last hymn is, Love Divine, All Loves Excelling. We praise you, Father in heaven, that we are being changed from one degree of glory to another. We don't notice it, Lord, it's happening so gradually, but we thank you, Lord, you're at work in us by your Spirit until that day comes when in heaven we take our place. And what will we be able to do, Lord, but cast our crowns before Thee and we'll be lost in wonder, love, and praise. Thank you, Lord, that day is coming. And with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all until he comes or calls us home. Amen.